0: Just a quick update before we dive into our next episode. Thanks to Audible, History of the Marine Corps can give you a free audiobook. Audible is known for its thousands of selections, and I use it all the time for myself and some of the reference material we use on the show. In the spirit of transparency, we receive a kickback for everyone who signs up, but the author or the publisher does not sponsor me. Every recommendation is a book I have personally read or listened to. I'll include my suggestion at the end of the episode, but don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. This offer is available to any of the tens of thousands of audiobooks offered by Audible. And whether you decide to continue your membership, this book is yours to keep, forever. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. Now on to the show. Welcome to Episode 110 of History of the Marine Corps, Desegregation in the Corps, Part 2. As Montford Point Marines completed their training, they prepared to head to the Pacific and join their fellow brothers-in-arms during World War II. This episode walks through the organization of the 51st and 52nd Battalions, some milestones along the way, their involvement in the war, and a few heroic stories about those who saw combat against Japanese forces. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. the 51st Composite Defense Battalion fought an uphill battle during its first year of existence. It wasn't just the lack of resources that posed the challenge. The unit was also missing experienced troops to provide mentorship to the new Marines. While instructors were brought in to train recruits, they focused primarily on teaching the fundamentals rather than addressing real-world issues specific to the battalion. Some of the most experienced Marines serving in the 51st were those who quickly understood the lessons and training. They were often reassigned to the drill field, schools, or other units to assist with the arrival of fresh recruits. When Lieutenant Colonel Stevenson took command, he did so with ambition. Within two weeks of taking the reins, he advocated transforming the 51st into a regular, heavy defense battalion. He argued that the unit had been designed to, quote, meet the requirements of a situation that no longer exists, unquote. On May 28, 1943, headquarters approved his request, albeit with one condition. Recruits training for infantry and field artillery would continue to train with the 51st. The battalion underwent a significant reorganization. It was divided into a combat unit comprising the Seacoast Artillery Group and the Special Weapons Group, which possessed 20mm and 40mm cannons, alongside 50 caliber machine guns. The Rifle Company was renamed Alpha Company, 7th Separate Infantry Battalion, while the 75mm unit became the 7th Separate Pack Howitzer Battery. The newly formed combat unit received rigorous training. Some Marines attended specialized schools, but the majority acquired experience the good old-fashioned way, through hands-on learning. By the end of the year, the battalion had expanded to include 1,700 Marines. Lieutenant Colonel Stevenson received orders to prepare for an additional 400 recruits, while continuing to train his other Marines for combat. The 52nd Defense Battalion was established at the outset of 1944. And new Marines were to be assigned to this unit. As responsibility grew and training intensified, accidents became an unfortunate reality. On August 20th, the Corps mourned the loss of Corporal Gilbert Fraser Jr., the first African American Marine to die in uniform. During a debarkation exercise, Fraser tragically fell 30 feet from a landing net into a boat. In remembrance of his sacrifice, Stevenson named the road leading from the main camp at Montford Point to the artillery range after him, ensuring that Fraser Road would serve as, quote, a constant reminder to those who come after him of the fine type of young manhood he represented, unquote. Despite this tragic event, the relentless training conducted by the 51st proved to be valuable. The Marines excelled in their craft to the extent that Commandant General Holcomb's perception began to shift. Secretary of the Navy Frank Knox and General Holcomb personally witnessed their proficiency during a target practice session at Onslow Beach. In a beautiful display of efficiency, the crew operating the 90mm gun quickly engaged and destroyed their target within 60 seconds. Impressed, Holcomb turned to Stevenson and remarked, quote, I think they're ready now, unquote. When Stevenson made a visit to headquarters for further instructions, he was met with a surprise. The deployment of the 51st was moved forward by five weeks. He was also directed to speed up the training of the 52nd by two weeks. To accomplish this aggressive goal, the rifle range was removed from the training schedule and holiday leave was canceled. On December 15th, the 400 new Marines formed a brand-new battalion. All Marines temporarily assigned to schools were recalled, while the others prepared their equipment for deployment. The final step in establishing this unit involved transferring all white NCOs and instructors to other units. Gunnery Sergeant Charles W. Simmons assumed the role of Battalion Sergeant Major, replacing a white sergeant who had trained him for the position. Reflecting on the situation, Simmons recalled, quote, I will never forget the consternation of the white sergeant who trained me for the job of sergeant major of the 51st when we learned that he would not go overseas with the battalion. I was surprised too, but I understand the situation. I had graduated, unquote. By the beginning of January, Montford Point Marines faced the relentless task of loading 25 freight cars daily facing heavy rain, snow, and sleet. Finally, on January 20th, they stood packed and ready for departure. In the final days leading up to a deployment to a conflict zone, a haunting feeling begins to settle in. Marines spend months getting ready for the deployment. They participate in intense training, preventive maintenance, they conduct drills, and multiple other exercises to prepare for combat. Yet in those last few days, you do very little, which can be more disturbing than preparation. It's a time for reflection, and the harsh reality of the imminent danger sinks in for many. There is an unspoken acknowledgement that not all the Marines who deploy together would return together. Everyone handles this reality differently. A lot of Marines seek solace in excessive amounts of alcohol, and painting the town red as a temporary distraction. A study conducted from 2012 to 2014 among shipboard personnel before deployment found that nearly 40% of troops engaged in hazardous alcohol misuse, with 27% participating in binge drinking. This really shouldn't come as a surprise. You can go back thousands of years and trace the use of alcohol before battle. Ancient Greeks, Romans, Vikings, and Samurais all had rituals before and sometimes during battle. In fact, there may be an argument for alcohol. During World War I, Tsar Nicholas II prohibited the production of sale of vodka, which led to low morale in the Russian army, and the total tax revenue dropped by 30%. The marines of the 51st were no exception, and they also found solace in a familiar ritual. A group of Montford Point marines gathered at the base snack bar, which was affectionately dubbed the Slop Shoot. But the atmosphere of celebration took a quick turn when military police arrived. The new Marines started arguing with the MPs, and as a result, the sergeant in charge quickly shut down the bar. Frustration gave way to a chaotic scene, as a few Montford Point Marines began pelting the sergeant with rocks in protest. The situation escalated when some of the stones shattered the snack bar's window. In response, the sergeant fired his rifle into the air three times, a warning shot that scattered the crowd. Later that evening, up to 20 shots were fired towards Montford Point. Corporal Roland J. Curtis, a drill instructor training his recruits in the nearby woods, was hit by one of these bullets. Though not seriously wounded, Curtis displayed remarkable composure. He calmed his recruits down and led them safely back to base. An investigation followed, which revealed a rifle with signs of recent firing and another weapon recently cleaned with hair oil, potentially to conceal its recent use. However, neither weapon was conclusively linked to the shooting and the case was ultimately closed. With their departure from the East Coast, the 51st Marines set course for San Diego to undertake the final stages of their deployment preparations. They proudly wore their new minted battalion shoulder patch, a round, red insignia featuring the number 51 in the center, beneath which sat the letters USMC. Resting above the number 51 was a blue 90mm anti-aircraft gun. On January 27th, Lieutenant Colonel Stevenson was reassigned to a new command. Colonel Curtis W. Legette, a Mustang who enlisted in the Marine Corps in 1910, took the reins with authority. On February 11th, they boarded the merchant transport SS Meteor, embarking on a journey to the Ellis Islands to relieve the 7th Defense Battalion. But two weeks into their voyage, the battalion split in half. Lieutenant Colonel Groves led one group to garrison Nanomia Island, while the rest sailed towards Funafuti, under Leggette's command. Upon relieving the 7th Defense Battalion, one of the 51st Marines joked, quote, they were never so glad to see black people in their lives, unquote. The Marines who were stationed on Nanomia Island were entrusted with maintaining and defending the airfields. On Funafuti, jet's orders were to safeguard the island's facilities, including anti-aircraft infrastructure, anchorage areas, and a motor torpedo boat base. During their time on these islands, the Marines encountered minimal action, aside from a notable incident where their 155mm guns fired 11 rounds at a Japanese submarine. Besides that event, their six-month deployment remained relatively uneventful. On September 8th, 1944, they were relieved by the 10th Defense Battalion and set sail towards Inowatoch. Two months later, Leggett transitioned to another unit, passing the baton of command to Groves. Before Leggett departed, Herman Darden Jr. recounted that he, quote, took us out on dress parade before he left and stood there with tears in his eyes and told us, you have shown me that you can soldier with the best of them. Unquote. For 19 months, the 51st had served overseas without receiving any replacements. It was time for them to go home, and the 52nd Defense Battalion arrived from Guam to take their place. Arriving in San Diego on December 10th, some men honorably completed their contracts and were separated from the Corps upon arrival in California the remaining Marines returned to Montford Point, and many were discharged four days before Christmas. By January 31, 1946, the 51st Defense Battalion was officially disbanded, and the remaining Marines were transferred to other units. As for the 52nd, they capitalized on the lessons learned from their predecessors and found themselves in far better shape having benefited from the guidance provided by experienced Marines instead of on-the-job training, they were more proficient and capable. Colonel Augustus W. Cockrell assumed command of the 52nd, another Mustang who enlisted in 1918 and was later commissioned. Among the NCOs of the 52nd, he was fondly known as Old Gus. Compared to their predecessors, The NCOs of the 52nd were more seasoned and experienced, having undergone boot camp ahead of the men they now led, instead of with them. They bore a deeper understanding of their responsibilities. Cockrell fought for additional technical school training for his Marines, ensuring they became even more efficient. However, Cockrell's tenure with the 52nd was short-lived, and he was eventually replaced by Colonel Joseph W. Earnshaw, in July 1944. Earnshaw was succeeded by Lieutenant Colonel David Sylvie in January, who then assumed the position of Executive Officer when Lieutenant Colonel Moore assumed command in May. Montford Point Marines attended a lot of of change-of-command ceremonies. As the war progressed, the 52nd Defense Battalion advanced with other Marine units to the Western Pacific. Excitement filled the air as rumors circulated that they would be deployed to Okinawa alongside MAG 31. The 51st Defense Battalion had paved the way, fostering acceptance among Marines. In a show of unity, staff NCOs from MAG 31 and the 52nd set up an integrated staff club. However, the much anticipated joint move never materialized, and while MAG 31 sailed off to Okinawa in March, The 52nd remained behind. This unexpected turn of events dealt a heavy blow to the Marines' morale. Private First Class John R. Griffith, a battalion clerk with the 52nd, vividly captured the impact, saying, Our morale dropped 99%. For the next week or 10 days, the men stayed around their tents, writing letters and whatnot, mad at the world and everyone in it. Instead of being a defense unit, we turned out to be nothing more than a working battalion. The battalion's focus shifted, and by the end of the month, about half of its members were assigned to various working parties on the island, primarily involved in loading and unloading cargo from ships. Sergeant Major Hashmark Johnson, who was known for his assertiveness, was pissed with the situation in the 52nd. Upon his arrival, He took charge and reinvigorated the Marines, reinstating patrols on the island. In a bold move, Johnson led the first patrol, drawing Japanese fire, but their stint on patrol duty was short-lived. In August 1945, the 52nd was ordered to stand down and primarily serve on guard duty. While the 51st and 52nd Defense Battalions did not experience extensive combat during World War II, Marines from these units were sent to various locations, such as Saipan, Tinian, Guam, Peleliu, Iwo Jima, and Okinawa, where they faced brutal fighting. In Saipan, they waded through waist-deep surf, unloading critical supplies, food, and water from boats. Captain William M. Barr recalled how the Black Marines set up security to protect against snipers, while loading casualties onto vessels bound for hospital ships. During intense enemy fire, they courageously guarded trucks carrying high-octane gasoline from the beach. Captain Adams, who landed in the fourth wave during the Iwo Jima invasion, described the chaos and the struggle to establish a good position. Quote, All hell was breaking when we came in. It was still touch and go when we hit shore, and it took some time to establish a foothold. Unquote. Tragically, Private Kenneth J. Tibbs, an orderly serving alongside Captain Adams, became the first African-American Marine killed in combat during the war. The Black Marines of the Ammunition Company played a crucial role in defending against a Japanese counterattack on June 15, 1944, during the Battle of Saipan, and they managed to neutralize an enemy machine gun. Lieutenant General Alexander Vandergrift who assumed command as the new commandant that year, clearly stated, quote, The Negro Marines are no longer on trial. They are Marines. Period. Unquote. Times War correspondent Robert Sherrod noted their exceptional performance and awarded them a universal 4.0 in the Naval Efficiency Rating System, the highest mark possible. On Guam, Private First Class Luther Woodward a member of the 4th Ammunition Company, demonstrated extraordinary bravery. While he was guarding an ammo dump, he noticed fresh footprints, and he followed them through thick brush. Woodward encountered six Japanese soldiers. He engaged them in a firefight and eliminated one while injuring another. Undeterred, he returned to camp and rallied five fellow Marines to hunt down the remaining enemy combatants eliminating two more Japanese soldiers. Woodward's actions earned him the Bronze Star. He was later upgraded to the Silver Star, the highest decoration bestowed upon a black Marine during the war. The Montford Point Marines earned the respect of their fellow Marines as preconceived notions faded away in the face of the enemy. During the intense shelling of Iwo Jima, a black Marine carrying supplies sought refuge in a fighting hole occupied by white Marines. In a small moment of camaraderie, one of the white Marines offered him a cigarette before he picked up his supplies and continued with his mission. Although the 51st and 52nd Defense Battalions did not deploy as a unit to Okinawa, approximately 2,000 black Marines served in ammunition and depot companies during the battle. Their contributions resulted in seven killed in action, two dying from wounds. 78 sustaining injuries, 9 suffering from combat fatigue, and 35 succumbing to other causes. In total, 19,168 Black Marines served in the Corps during World War II, with 12,738 serving overseas in defense battalions, combat support companies, or as stewards. Contrary to Holcomb's prediction of a loss in efficiency, the Marine Corps never reverted to its racially discriminatory policies of 1940. Although there was still a lot of room for improvement, progress in the Corps continued. The Navy's V-12 program provided enlisted men with an opportunity to pursue a college education and ultimately receive a commission in the Navy or Marine Corps Reserve. In 1944, the Corps assigned the first black Marines to this program. Charles F. Anderson, Charles W. Simmons, and George F. Ellis Jr. were selected for this training. A huge send-off party was held on March 12, 1945 at the Staff NCO Club in Montford Point to celebrate these Marines' achievements. But despite the overwhelming support, none of the three men received their commissions. One received a medical discharge due to a congenital heart murmur, while the other two failed to meet the required military and academic ratings. Now, given their exceptional qualifications, rank, and college education, their failure to meet the standards seems unlikely. These were bright men. They had stellar marine experience. Anderson and Simmons were sergeant majors, and Ellis was a first sergeant. They also attended college and all held prominent jobs when they left the Corps. Ellis was a physician, Anderson a lawyer, and Simmons a professor and an author. Failing the required military and scholastic ratings doesn't seem too likely. Three other black candidates with similar qualifications later faced the same outcome. Sergeant Major Hashmark Johnson said, quote, There were a number of questions asked and quite a bit of consternation. Unquote. It wasn't until November 10th. 1945, that PFC Frederick C. Branch from Hamlet, North Carolina, shattered barriers and became the first Black Marine officer to receive a second lieutenant commission. It's fitting that this historic event took place on the Marine Corps' birthday. In 1946, Charles Johnson, Judd Davis, and Herbert Brewer followed suit and were commissioned as officers as well. Despite these advancements, Black Marines continued to face discrimination in the Corps during the years immediately following World War II. The number of authorized black personnel was reduced to 1,500, and their roles were significantly limited. With 1,150 designated for general duty and the remaining assigned as stewards. But on July 26, 1948, President Truman signed Executive Order 9981 effectively banning discrimination in the armed forces. Although the Marine Corps had made strides towards desegregation, resistance remained prevalent at the highest levels. Commandant General Clifton D. Cates voiced his disagreement and stated that the issues of segregation was a societal problem, not one for the armed forces. Quote, the problem with segregation is not the responsibility of the armed forces, but is a problem of the nation. Changing national policy in this respect through the armed forces is a dangerous path to pursue, inasmuch as it affects the ability of the national military establishment to fulfill its mission. Should the time arise that non-segregation, and this term applies to whites as well as Negro, is accepted as a custom of the nation, this policy can be adopted without detriment by the national military establishment." Unquote. Nevertheless. Change was underway. On November 18, 1949, the Marine Corps issued a Memorandum of Guidance to Commanders, revoking all policies prohibiting mixed units. Some historians often consider this memo the official start of integration in the Marine Corps, as it declared that black Marines would be assigned to vacancies based on their military occupational specialties, wherever their services could be effectively utilized. Black Marines were now invited to participate in the Corps' basketball, track, football, and boxing teams. Holcomb's classified letter of instruction, forbidding black Marines from leading white Marines, was rescinded. Training facilities began allowing racially mixed classes, and new recruits would attend integrated boot camps at Paris Island. In 1949, the first black women Marines entered the Corps. Annie Graham from Detroit, Michigan enlisted on September 8th, followed by Ann Lamb from New York the next day. Coincidentally, on the same day, the headquarter company of Monford Point Camp was deactivated, and the remaining 242 Marines were dispersed to other units on Camp Lejeune. This decision evoked mixed emotions. Master Sergeant Edgar Huff described it as, quote, a sad day. It was a black day, a black mark as far as I'm concerned. Myself, and to my knowledge, the majority of black Marines, we wanted to stay together. We had our own camp, we had our own resources, and we were taken care of. Holding our own, we called it at the time, and didn't care to go anyplace. I was sorry to see it happen, unquote. Hashmark had a more holistic view of the change. Quote, Some of them saw it as a gradual phasing out of the Negro Marine. And others saw it as an opportunity to show they were equal in proficiency and all other qualifications to their white counterparts. Some welcomed the opportunity, and others were just a bit scared of it. As the Korean War loomed on the horizon, the challenge of desegregation was about to face another critical test. Thanks for listening. This week's audiobook is The Laws of Human Nature by Robert Greene. I had my mind blown multiple times as I read this book. Greene dives into the depths of human nature, uncovering profound insights, and unveiling the secrets behind our natural tendencies. This book is a fascinating exploration that combines historical examples and psychological insights to explain the workings of our behavior. Green condenses his extensive research into a series of key principles that govern human nature, the very laws that shape our interactions and shape who we are. Each chapter dives into various personality types and behavioral patterns that exist within all of us. From the charismatic charmer to the astute observer, the pragmatic realist to the cunning manipulators, Green presents a thorough view of personalities. Through historical anecdotes, psychological insights, and practical strategies, this book provides tools to understand and engage with these different personalities effectively. Now, I'm willing to bet that most of you at this time are picking out the most complimentary traits and applying them to yourselves. I did the same thing, and the book helped me realize that I was full of crap. This book was humbling it challenged my preconceived notions and helped identify the aspects of myself that may need reevaluation visit audibletrial.com/marinehistory for a free copy of this audiobook and a free 30-day trial if you like what you're hearing check out historyofthemarinecore.com. here you can subscribe to our newsletter find out more information about each show and look at references used for each episode we're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and tell us why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening and Semper Fi.